praise Him, praise with us the God of grace. Let's take God's Word together again to the Old Testament book of Exodus. And uh, we'll continue looking at our series on the life of Moses. And uh, we've come now to Exodus chapter 18. And there are really three things I want to draw your attention to uh, this morning with the help of God. And uh, the first one being just the, the simple narrative of the chapter. And uh, we, we've read it. Tommy read it for us just a moment ago. And it's quite an interesting transition. We've been hearing about what God is doing amongst the children of Israel, the a great a display of God's power and his provision for them. And now we come to a different kind of a time, a chapter in the, in the nation of Israel. And uh, Jethro shows back up on the scene. That's Moses' father-in-law. And uh, he has heard of all that God has done in and through his son-in-law, no doubt. His heart was filled with joy as he could imagine that his daughter and son-in-law were a part of God's great plan. So he brings Zipporah and that's Moses' wife, and Moses' two sons, who had been entrusted into his care, if you remember, when Moses went back to Egypt to deliver the nation of Israel. And so Jethro hears of God's deliverance, and so he brings Zipporah and Moses' two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, and comes to the Mount of God, uh, meets them there at the Mount of God, and rejoices, acknowledging all that God has done, and recognizing the God of Israel, Jehovah, as the one true God. And the next day, Moses gets up, and from morning until evening, he sits there and listens to the complaints and the troubles and the issues of the children of Israel. Now, imagine for just a moment, one man to deal with all the problems of up to two million people. Think about that. One man, I think I've got it bad at home with six children and a wife. But two million people, he sits from morning until evening, listening to every care and every concern and trying to solve every problem. Now, I remind you as well, 400 years they've been in Egypt, not been able to practice and worship as they should have been able to. And so they're a bit rusty on their walk with God. They're doubting Jehovah. They're, they're, they're trying to remember all the things about their great God. And so there's a lot that needs, a lot of rough edges that need to be worked on. And not only that, but they've just defeated the Amalekites, you remember? And they've taken all the spoil, and no doubt about it, there's fussing and arguing over who could have this and who could have that, and jealousies and covetousness and all sorts of things had arisen. So Moses' job of trying to act as judge over the nation of Israel was, was, in one sense or another, killing him. And not only him, but the people as well. Can you imagine having to wait so long just to talk to Moses? And so Jethro recognizes this is a problem. It's a problem for you, Moses, and it's a problem for the people. And so he gives a bit of advice about how that might be organized and structured in a way that be, would be used in the early church in the book of Acts to help govern. some of the decisions that would be made then and also a chapter and principles that are used in the church today that's the narrative that's what happened in the chapter now i want to show you a couple for a couple of moments some types that's found that are found in this chapter because one thing i'm i'm beginning to see more and more as i read god's word that everything from beginning to end 
has something to do with Jesus, our Savior. That this is a book about Christ. And the more I read his word, the more I open it, the more I begin to realize it's not just words and stories, not just a collection of, of narratives put together for our, for our understanding, but it is in many ways, picture after picture, lesson after lesson about who Jesus, our Messiah, is. Wonderful. One thing you find in this chapter is you find a beautiful type of the church. What do you mean you find a type of the church? Well, it's a wonderful combination. If you remember, uh, the church is a combination of Jew, Gentile, every, every nationality, every culture, every people group, every kind of person is what the church is made up of. And that's what you find here. Moses, as a picture of Christ leading the nation of Israel out of bondage, out of the world, and uh, into, into salvation, you could say. And if you remember Moses, when he had been rejected by his own people, the nation of Israel, he was given a wife, a Gentile bride. What a picture. Uh, the bride, Moses' bride, was a bride of rejection, of his rejection. Rejected by the Jews, received by the Gentiles. And we have here a beautiful coming together. That's what the church is in the New Testament. A combination of Jew and Gentile, of all who would believe. And we find that together here. Jethro, a Gentile, coming down with Zipporah, a Gentile, the wife of Moses, meeting together at the Mount of God, worshiping together, sacrificing together, Jew and Gentile together. If you remember as well, another interesting thought, Zipporah, the wife of Moses. If you remember uh, on the way, chapter 4, when Moses was on the way uh, back to Egypt, uh, there was a sickness that came over Moses, and Zipporah herself had to circumcise her children. And she said, Thou art a bloody husband indeed. And the truth is, the Lord Jesus is a husband of blood unto us, his church. Through his own shed blood, he purchased our salvation. What a beautiful picture found all through Scripture. What a scene in verses 7 to 12 of Jethro, a Gentile, worshiping and sacrificing together with the Jews. The children of Israel were witnesses of all of God's power and all of God's faithfulness and all of God's mercy. The Gentiles, Jethro, hearing of God's deliverance, hearing of God's power, says, now I know that this Jehovah God is the one true living God. And then the church together, both Jew and Gentile, worshiping and serving together. A wonderful picture, a wonderful type in this chapter. But there's a greater picture here. There's a greater picture in this 18th chapter of Exodus. The greatest picture found here and also the greatest picture that could be ever found in Scripture is the picture of Jesus Christ. Now think about Moses for just a moment. From morning until evening, hearing what the people had to say, turning to God the Father, interceding for the people to God the Father, asking for the right answer then to give back to the people. From morning until evening. What a picture of Jesus, our great mediator. And by the way, one man for all the people. But let me tell you something. That was too much for Moses. Because Moses was, at the end of the day, one man. But it's not too much for Jesus. It's not too much for our Savior who is both God and man. A wonderful truth found in Scripture. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man at the same time. Deity and humanity uh, together in one body. And the Lord Jesus, 
intercedes, the Bible says, where he ever liveth, he's seated at the right hand of God, where he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. It's not the pastor. It's not the priest, the vicar, or whatever title you want to give. There's one mediator between God and man. And the scriptures say, God's word says, the man Christ Jesus. There's one person like Moses stood, sat on that seat, and one by one, the children of Israel came to him and with their requests, with their complaints. One at a time, they came to Moses, and Moses would talk to God on their behalf. Well, there's one mediator today, and that is Jesus. And can I tell you something? You don't have to wait one at a time. I can pray, and you can pray at the same time, and the Lord Jesus, because he is omniscient and omnipotent, he's all-knowing and all-powerful, he can hear both of our requests at the same time and answer them at the same time. Scriptures go on all through script, all through the Bible. It speaks about this truth of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7. Listen to this beautiful verse. Hebrews 7 and verse 25. Wherefore he, speaking of Jesus, is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. By the way, you can't get to God any other way. And do you know that the nation of Israel knew that they couldn't get to God any other way besides Moses? They recognized Moses was God's man. Well, likewise, we understand you cannot get to God except through Jesus. And so the scriptures say here that God is able to save them. He's able to save you to the uttermost if you would come to God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus lives today. He's alive today. He isn't dead. He isn't in a tomb somewhere in the Middle East. He's alive today, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. Jesus says that in, in, uh, in, in the book of John, that he's praying for us. Praying for us. What a thought. It's, it's nice when somebody tells me that they're praying for me. It's encouraging, isn't it? And I'm sure you feel the same way. Somebody says, I'm praying for you. That's encouraging. But how much more encouraging is it to know that Jesus prays for us? How much more encouraging to know that the one who knows everything about your troubles and your problems is praying for you? I don't know. I don't have a clue about some of the things you're going through. And you might be too ashamed to even speak about them. But Jesus knows it all, and he's praying. Robert Murray McShane, that great minister from Dundee, Scotland, he once said this, I would not fear a thousand armies if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the room next door. He went on to say this, the distance matters not. He's still praying for me. I may not be able to hear him next door in the room next door to me, but I know he is praying nonetheless. And so fear not. Jesus is interceding for you. In John chapter, pardon me, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24, again, it says this, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but he's entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's what Jesus is doing. Just as Moses was appearing before God for the people of Israel, Jesus is appearing before the throne of God today for you. Let that comfort you. Let that help you. Let that encourage you. Romans, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 34, just in case you're not persuaded, uh, who is he that condemneth? 
It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Here's what he's saying. You can condemn me all you want to. You can judge me all you want to. Jesus is sat and he's praying for me. Now the Bible says in the book of Revelation that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses us day and night before the throne of God. Did you ever think about that? Jesus, and he doesn't, just, he doesn't just accuse you before God. He accuses you in your own ear. You ever felt that? You ever heard the voice of evil inside of your own heart and mind saying you're worthless, you're utterly incapable, you can't do anything, you're a failure, you call yourself a Christian, you're good for nothing. You ever heard that before? I hear that quite regularly. But I have an intercessor. You might have a brother or a sister, a so-called brother or a sister, who accuses you. And they judge you perhaps in the wrong way. Jesus prays for you. He intercedes for you. And in 1 John is another expression of uh, Jesus. He's our mediator. He comes between us and God. He's our intercessor. And then also in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2, another, another word that is used for what Jesus is doing right now. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate, a defense attorney, you could say. And he is the propitiation for our sins, the atonement for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What an amazing thought that when you do stumble and fall, and although Satan comes against you with railing accusations, we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney. We have somebody who's praying for us. And I encourage you, Moses got tired, and he couldn't continue like that. Jesus never grows tired. Rest in him. Now, I want to share one last thought. We talked about the narrative. We talked about the types. Let's have the application of this chapter. Well, the immediate application is this. If Jesus is involved in the work of intercession, so should we. If Christ deems it most appropriate as the Son of the living God is God in the flesh, if he, he de deems it appropriate to, to spend his days and his time now at the right hand of God in intercession, then surely we also ought to join in that work of prayer and intercession. You and I should be praying. Every great man or woman of God through history has been marked by their prayer life, without exception. Anything else is an imposter. Every great man or woman of God in the past has been marked by their prayer life. Without a prayer life, without an active communion with God, you are an imposter. Because that is your communication with the living God. And if you're not communicating to him and he's not communicating to you, then you're just going through the motions. It's a formality. It's a form of godliness and denying the power thereof. I was reading a little commentary on this, and a few little illustrations were listed. And I think E.M. Bounds added to these in his work on the preacher in prayer. But just a couple of little thoughts. You've heard before, some of you, I'm sure, Martin Luther used to spend three hours a day in prayer and meditation. And if he had an exceptionally busy day, he said, I'm so busy today, I must spend more time in prayer. We usually think the other way, don't we? 
I'm so busy today, I can't spend as much time. I'm sorry, God. God, you'll understand. You know my heart. You know, hey, I'm just really busy today. I can't spend as much time as I would like to. No, no, Luther said, no, I am so busy. I have to spend more time because he understood his confidence was not in his execution of his duties and responsibilities, but in his great God. And he understood if he had more to do today, then he needed more grace, more power, more blessing. And you and I would be a whole lot better off if we thought that way as well. There was a bishop by the name Bishop Andrews who used to spend, he thought the day was ill-spent if he didn't spend five hours in prayer and intercession. On average, they say, five to seven hours you spend on that mobile phone. Can you imagine what would happen if we spent that much time in prayer? I could never do that. Well, you can spend five hours on your mobile phone. Surely, surely you could spend five hours in prayer. Another man went on, a fellow called John Welsh. He thought that he, he would not be, he felt uncomfortable with God, uncomfortable with himself and his relationship with God if he hadn't spent eight to ten hours in closet prayer. Now, I'm not saying that to make you feel bad and want to crawl into a hole somewhere and disappear, but I am saying we could spend more time in prayer. How many of you know you could and should spend more time in prayer? Me too. Prayer is the greatest work. Your prayer life is your Christian life. This is our work. So the application we see in Moses of praying and interceding for all of these people. Somebody says, well, I don't know what to pray for. Really? Look around you. Look at the faces around you, brothers and sisters. Look at the government today. Look at the world today. Look at the problems today. You don't know what to pray for. There's plenty to pray about. Now, what other application do we find in our text? We find some amazing, helpful, practical tips here. The work of God was never meant to be for one man alone. Now, we do know that the Lord Jesus and him alone is our Savior. But in the church, when you've been converted, the work of God's work is not to be reserved to one man or even just a couple of men. That's the way we think, isn't it? Well, we leave that to the paid clergy. They're qualified and we pay them to do that after all, don't we? And there are even churches today that employ evangelists so that they don't have to do it themselves. What a shame. All of us should be involved in the Lord's work in some way. And we find in this chapter this kind of instruction given. D.L. Moody once said this, it is better to set 100 men to work than to do the work of 100 men. Now, we sometimes pride ourselves, don't we? I work harder than anybody else. I do the work of 10 men. I do the work. Well, hold on, that's great, but it would be better if you taught 10 men how to do what you're doing. Now, don't worry. I, the Lord has dealt with me severely in looking at this text. We would be better off setting people to work, encouraging people to work, challenging people to work. That's what you find here. Jethro said, look, you're going to kill yourself and you're going to kill the people. Something has to change. Okay, so what are we looking for? That's a good question, right? When you're looking at this text, when Jethro suggested, look, very humbly, by the way, very humbly, he suggested to Moses, you ask and see if this be from God. But he said, why don't you choose some men? 
Why don't you choose some men and then we can divide and conquer as it were? What are we looking for? Well, if you look at our text, we find a, a, a series of different kinds of people. There will always be, there must always be the Moseses, the Aaron's, and the hers. If you look at verses uh, 19 and 20 of our text, hearken now unto my voice, I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward. There you go, there's the job of Moses. Aaron and her, you could say, they were for the people to Godward. They were constantly going, their work was to intercede on behalf of the people before Almighty God and to deal, to hear from God, to deliver God's word unto the people. That was their job. It was twofold. To speak to man on behalf of God and to speak to God on behalf of man. That was their job. And there must always be those within the congregation. It goes on, thou wilt surely wear away, pardon me, verse number 20, uh, and thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. There's your first folks that we're looking for. Those who have a calling on their life. And by the way, uh, it's, you just don't any, many, miny moan choose somebody to do that. A lot of churches do. And that's why they fall apart. You don't put somebody in a position just for the sake of it. And you don't do it even just because you need it. But because they're qualified. Called of God. And we have that crowd and then we have another crowd. Verse number 21. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men. Such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Here's the second crowd we're looking for. Able men. Four descriptions. Jethro was wise. Not just any man. Able men. They must be able to do what we're going to suggest them do. I'm not going to call my 11-year-old son and, and, and imagine him to be an able man. Not at all. They must be fit for the job of leading. They must be able to lead. They must fear God. There's nothing worse than a man leading in a church who does not fear God. Nothing worse. Because if, if the man leading doesn't fear God, or the men leading do not fear God, then you cannot expect the people to fear God. Nothing worse. Thirdly, they must be men of truth. You can fear God, but if you're not a man of the book, if you're not a man of truth, you can very easily deviate, go off course, go down the wrong direction. But you've got to be a man of truth. And if you're a man of truth, then you'll lead the people in truth. And fourthly, the scriptures say they have to hate covetousness. Why did he say that? I'll tell you why. Because there's a natural tendency in man to want to bribe people to get them to say and do what they want them to do. Two million people there. Oh, we see it in churches today. Uh, come on now, pastor. You know how much I give. You know all I've done. Hate covetousness. Hate it passionately. I heard a story of G. Campbell Morgan. I told it recently. G. Campbell Morgan was a minister of Westminster Chapel before Lloyd-Jones came along. And a wonderful ministry, many great books, was written by, by this man, a man of God. God used him greatly. He had a heart for the homeless, for the down and outs, and ministry to them. And he would go out to them and bring them in and, 
So many began coming because they saw his heart of compassion for them, and they felt welcome. Well, it was, their church was in Westminster, Westminster, London, a very posh part of town. And a lot of wealthy people and prominent people in society attended, and, and they pulled, some of the elders and deacons and leaders pulled Mr. Morgan aside one day and said, now listen, we understand you have a heart for the homeless and the down and out, and I think that's wonderful. That's very admirable. But we're going to have to draw a line somewhere now. Mr. Morgan said, what do you mean? Well, they're causing a great disruption. Sorry to hear that. What, what do you mean? They're sitting in our seats. And, and, uh, and also, they, they, uh, they, they're not very clean. And so they stink. It's very distracting. And Mr. Morgan said, what would you suggest I should do? Well, we're not suggesting anything too extreme, but maybe you could give them their own, own seating section. Westminster Chapel was a beautiful building, had two galleries. Maybe you could sit them on the top gallery. Mr. Morgan said, I cannot do that. In conscience before God, I cannot do that. The meeting was adjourned. They went on their way, and it wasn't long before another meeting was called, and the same men, with, perhaps with a couple more men, said, listen, Something needs to be done. And here's how they argued it this time. If you don't do something, we will leave and take our money with us. And unfortunately, Mr. Campbell gave in. G. Campbell Morgan gave in. Had a designated seating area and he wrote himself, that's the day my church died. That's the day it died. We had a hate covetousness. A man involved in leading God's people ought to hate covetousness. Ought to hate the idea of doing it for money with a passion. So you find you're looking for the Moseses and the Aarons and the Hurs. You're looking for the able men who are able to, to lead. You say, well, that's it, right? No, 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 no. Let me remind you, rewind. We also need to find the warriors because they just fought the Amalekites. And Moses, and, and if you remember Aaron and her were on top of the hill, uh, Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms as he held the rod of God. And so there were men fighting below, fighting beneath in the thick of it all. You say, well, I don't feel like I'm a Moses or an Aaron or a her. I don't feel like I'm able to lead. That doesn't sound like me. But can you fight? Can you fight? Can you enlist in the army of God? Can you get out there and employ yourself in the work of winning souls? We look around today and we realize we need those who are helping in every area imaginable. Those who sit at the sound desk in the live streaming department. Those who go and find the calor gas to make sure that we're warm enough on a Sunday. Those who check the straps on the tent to make sure it doesn't fall down when we're meeting here. Those who make sure the stones are put down properly and the potholes don't swallow up our cars when we drive in. Those who take care of the finances. Those who go out under the streets with the gospel. Those who visit the sick. Those who send cards to those who are lonely and not doing well. We need young people, old people, everyone in between. So don't be discouraged. Turn with me, if you would, to two passages in closing. Ephesians chapter 4. In fact, let's go to 1 Corinthians, first, 1 Corinthians 12 first. I don't know what my job is. I don't know what I should do. I don't really fit anywhere. No, 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 you do fit. Because the Bible says every member fits. 
Look with me, please, at what Paul writes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a famous portion of Scripture. The Bible says in verse, verse number 4, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's a lot of different gifts in this body. And there are differences of administrations, ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. If you, we won't turn there, but if you look at Numbers chapter 11, you find another instance when Moses gets fed up with all the work that he has to do. And he says to God, I can't do it anymore. And God says, okay, you choose 70 elders, 70 men to lead. Can I tell you something? Whether one man does the work of God or, or whether 70 men do the work of God, it doesn't matter because it's God's work. So the moment you think, oh, I wish I could do that. I, I'm not this. I can't do this. I don't have that. No, 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 no. We have nothing but what God has given us. It is not the person. It is the God that is enabling them to do what he's called them to do. And so he goes on. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Every man. For one, to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, but, but, Oh, that's really grand. But all these worketh that one and self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and we have been made all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Watch this. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? Well, I think feet can be some of the ugliest parts of the body. But can you imagine not having feet? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the ear says, look, I wish I was the eye, I wish I could see. Instead, i got to be the one that hears all the rubbish. Does that mean he's a lesser part of the body just because he's different? Not at all. It goes on. And if the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? If we were all the same, if we were all hands. Be an ugly congregation. But now are they many members, but yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more. Watch this. The members of the body, which seem to be more feeble, are necessary. Maybe today you're saying, oh, I, I feel like I have nothing. I can't do anything. No, 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 no. The members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. They're needed. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. 
and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. So let me just encourage you this morning. Would you look here? If God has saved you by his grace, then you have an important part to play in the body. Yeah, but I can't play the piano. I can't. I don't have a first clue about technology and, and I don't know how to turn a gas bottle on to save my life and I can't string two sentences together. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. There is something God has specifically for you that the man who turns on the gas bottle can't do, that the woman who tickles the ivory can't do. There's something God has specifically for you that nobody else can do. And if you don't do it, the body suffers. If I were to remove one of my hands... The entire, my entire body would never be the same. And if one of the members is removed, the body will never be the same. So don't think I'm nobody. doesn't really matter if I'm there or not. It does. It does matter. In fact, Paul reiterates this in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, listen to this, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. Now I want you to think about a joint. Uh, here I have, you can see, uh, obviously, two bones come together, there's a joint. When two members come together, there's a joint. Well, the Bible says when that happens, biology tells us when that happens, then you produce the opportunity to do something that you couldn't do before. Now, if there wasn't a joint here, I'm limited in what I can do. The moment there's two joined at once, I can now do more than I could have done previously. And every time God adds another member to the body, the church is now able to do more than it was doing. So listen carefully. If God has brought you here, it is not for you just to warm up a black chair on Sunday. It's for you to be involved. It's for you to take the work of God further. And so somebody said, well, man, the church has grown. That's wonderful. But there's a reason it's grown. Church is not about getting together and just listening to somebody waffle on for 45 minutes every week. Church is about expanding the kingdom of God. And so every time God adds, it's for a very specific purpose so that the kingdom can go further. That's, the verse goes on. From the whole body fitly joined together, compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, can I tell you something? If every time a member is added, if the body isn't edified in love, there's a problem. That means this, the body has to grow in love every time it grows in membership. Because there's a certain amount of love now, we thank God for it. I hope that when you visit it or when you come, you feel that people really do care and that people really do love one another. I hope you feel that way. Nothing encourages me more than when people visit and they say, that is a very loving church. But can I tell you something? If the love doesn't grow, as the church grows, 
then it's not sufficient. One of the greatest things you can contribute to the work of God is love. Love for the brethren, love for the lost, a genuine care. Otherwise, you leave it like the Israelites were doing for so long. You leave all that care and all that love and all that work to one. And then everybody suffers. So what's your part? What is it that God's called you to do that nobody else can do? Now, don't get too excited about yourself and, well, hey, well, if I don't do it, then no, 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 no. Because God can easily put you aside and bring somebody else. But God intends to use you. He wants to use you. So rejoice in that. I don't know. Well, let's pray. Let's pray and ask God to show us what is it that you've given me to do? What is it that you've led me to do? And may the Lord reveal it to you and may you run with arms wide open into it. And let me in closing read just a little excerpt from Mr. F.B. Meyer in regards to this thing. Listen to this. There is too strong a tendency in most congregations to leave the work of saving the lost to a salaried class. Meaning those who get paid to do it. The plan of sending substitutes may have its advantages for heathen lands, but it cannot become universal without a serious loss to individual believers. As to the church and to the world, your personal witness for Christ is an imperative obligation. Meaning, you and I must testify of Jesus. You cannot evade it by any excuse to your temperament. Well, I'm, I'm shy. Your nervousness or your circumstances. The king makes no exceptions. His command is decisive. If we belong to his church, we are bound to proclaim his love and death to every creature within our reach. You must speak of him to your brother, your neighbor, and your fellow citizen, saying, Know the Lord. And he that heareth must say, Come. Can I tell you, let me encourage you. You can reach people that I can never reach because of where you live and the people that you know. You can do what I can never do. And I, in my position where I'm living and where God's put me, can do what you can't do. So do what you can do. That woman broke the alabaster box and poured it upon the Lord Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her hair. And the Lord Jesus said, she hath done what she could. That's all God wants from you, to do what you can do. That's all he wants. I don't know. I can't do that. God's not asking you to do what somebody else is doing. He's asking you to do what he's called you to do. So do what you can do for the glory of God. And then you watch. Every time this happened in the Bible, there was an explosion of growth. The book of Acts, they appointed seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, to serve so that the apostles could get on with the ministry of the word and prayer. And immediately... Exponential growth. Every time. But as long as everybody's happy to sit back and let a couple of people do all the work, we're going to stay just like this. May God help us. Give us vision for what could be done. For what we could be involved in. And may he use us for his glory. Let's pray together, then we'll sing our final hymn. Father, we thank thee for thy word and the privileges and opportunities of being involved in thy work. What a humbling thought that we who are nothing better than rotten sinners could possibly be used by a holy, righteous God. 
that we could be a part of thy great work. Father, we thank thee for this privilege. Help us to take it up. Help us to take our place, our position, our ranking.